1: Hey, we're going to be talking a lot about sexual violence in this series. There's also some language. If either of those things are upsetting for you, please take care while you're listening.
0: So it was a couple days before we were going to go to L.A. to interview a woman with a credible allegation of rape against Harvey. Rich McHugh is a news and documentary producer. And back in
1: 2016 and 2017, he was my producer at NBC. He was alongside me while I was reporting on allegations against Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood executive.
0: And we were about to book our flights. I think you might have already booked your flight, or mm-hmm. might have even been en route. And um, the decision was handed down to me by, by Rich Greenberg. Rich Greenberg runs the investigative unit at NBC News. He was our boss, and just below the president of NBC News, Noah Oppenheim. I'll never forget it. He said, uh, Noah, was very, very clear you were to stand down. You know, done. We're done here. I, I don't think I've ever been more angry in my life. And I went back to my desk and I wrote you and myself an email about what had, what was all said to me in that meeting. In, in that moment, I realized a couple things. One, the story was dead at NBC for all intents and purposes for me. But also, there was another story now that that I had a certain responsibility to pay attention to, at the very least, like pay attention to which is the NBC killing the story. This is the Catch and
1: Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. Much of my reporting on Harvey Weinstein has become synonymous with the New Yorker Magazine. That's where the story ultimately ran. And they're the folks I've kept reporting with in the months and years since. But what's not as well known is that much of the reporting actually started at NBC News, an outlet that decided not to run the story. Now, stories get killed all the time. Sometimes you just don't have enough reporting, don't have enough evidence. But that wasn't the case with the Weinstein story at NBC. We had a lot and plenty more promising leads we could have pursued. And the fact that NBC passed on it, the fact that they didn't let us pursue those leads, raised a lot of questions, both outside of that building and within the network's own ranks. The story of what unfolded at NBC is a case study in the power of news organizations to safeguard the truth, and in how devastating the consequences can be when they do the opposite. And nobody had a clearer view of that drama or was placed in a more difficult position because of it than Rich McHugh.
3: And I said, man, we're either gonna get this on the air or probably get fired. <laughs> yep.
1: Today, we're gonna tell you that story, how it happened in real time.
2: When you couldn't go to L.A., mm-hmm. that one really got me angry. The cutoff, that really infuriated me. Yeah,
1: Rich lives in suburban New Jersey with his wife, Danny, and their four daughters.
2: Two sets of twin girls.
1: And you deserve uh, some crazy medal for just surviving that.
2: <laughs>
0: Rich grew up in the suburbs, too, outside Chicago. Um, youngest of four kids, Irish Catholic family, to Jesuit schools, played ice hockey. Like a lot of hockey. He drove himself
1: to Detroit for games, even went to a special school for it. He was still playing when we worked together. He'd limp into the office with all sorts of weird injuries. But Rich's dreams of
0: playing in the NHL didn't quite pan out. He wound up studying English in college. I never actually thought about being a journalist until, and you're gonna find this interesting, uh, I was at Columbia and I watched The Insider.
2: If you got vital insider stuff, the American people, for their welfare, really do need to know, and you feel impelled to disclose it and violate your agreement in doing so, that's one thing.
1: If you haven't thing. seen it, The Insider is a great journalism movie. It's a dramatized version of a true story. Al Pacino plays reporter Lowell Bergman, a 60 Minutes producer, who convinces a big tobacco whistleblower to go public about a massive cover-up at his company and break his non-disclosure agreement. Bergman's problem, though is that executives at CBS do not want the story to air on 60 Minutes. They're worried they'll get sued. And so Bergman winds up fighting his bosses at the network.
2: Since when has the uh, paragon of investigative journalism allowed lawyers to determine the news content on 60 Minutes? You won't be satisfied unless you're putting the company at risk. What are you? Are you a businessman or are you a newsman?
0: And I was like, Lowell Bergman, that that guy's amazing. So Rich went into broadcast news. He started out producing
1: at Fox News, then MSNBC, then he spent nearly a decade at ABC's Good Morning America. When I met him, he was trying to settle into a new role at the investigative unit at NBC News.
0: You know, I was trying to find my my spot. I was working with... Several correspondents, and, you know, enjoying some of the work. I went overseas and did some crime stories about the NYPD, but I hadn't found a lane. I didn't have a correspondent that I was gelling with particularly, you know, there wasn't somebody that we ham and egged with. And then... And then we met. <laughs> and then you come into the picture.
1: What was your Do you first... To, <laughs> well, tell me your side. Be honest. My first
0: impression of you was, was watching you on, on your cable show.
1: Hello welcome to Ronan Farrow Daily. I'm Ronan Farrow. I'll be here daily. And as it turned out, briefly. My own career was pretty up in the air when Rich and I met. I was in my mid-twenties. I'd been hosting this midday show on MSNBC. We got some bad reviews at the start, some good reviews by the end, and pretty much no viewers throughout. Hey, midday cable is tough. But enough about me. It's time for today's headlines. So it was canceled. I got bumped and I became an NBC investigative correspondent. I was working with a rotating cast of producers on stories. That's when Rich and I got assigned to work together.
0: We weren't exactly ham and egg ourselves. If I'm being honest, I was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm gonna like this guy. <laughs> I'm, you asked me to be honest. I did. I just remember, I, you, you were, you were texting all the time. Like, what's, what, you know, is this right? Is that, what are we doing? <laughs> and I was like, I, I, haven't, I hadn't been used to that level of hands-on. I'm sure that the producers working on this podcast, who have any experience of me so far,
1: uh, are laughing at this because my work style is very much. Like, I am so invested in every aspect of it and, like, very controlling. And I love to be collaborative and bring in other people, but I also demand a lot of involvement. If I
0: responded to one text, like, (laughs) yes, you'd send me, like, 17 more texts. Like, okay, now that you're listening, okay, I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, thanks for putting up with that. Literally everyone I've ever worked with. I actually wondered, in retrospect, if they thought we would just cancel each other out, and like a problem would be solved, and they could just put us over in the corner, <laughs> in corner and be like, "Okay, McHugh and Farrow, they're done. Now the next problem." Like, did they did they think we would actually develop some good work together? I I honestly don't know. But I I don't know
1: what the expectation was, but I doubted that we would develop good work together. <laughs> There have always been unspoken norms about how mainstream outlets cover wealthy and connected men accused of sexual abuse. Like when I'd try to cover the allegations against Bill Cosby on my show, I'd sometimes get pushback from veteran producers. It was old news, it wasn't news. But things were starting to change. In spring 2016, The Hollywood Reporter ran a glowing profile of Woody Allen, glossing over a long-standing allegation my sister, Dylan, had made that he molested her when she was seven years old. And for the first time, the magazine got a lot of backlash for not asking harder questions about it. So they asked if I'd write something about the media's responsibilities when it came to this issue. For most of my adult life, I'd avoided talking about the allegations. At one point, I even told Dylan to basically quiet down about it. I'd been trying to build my own career on my own merits. But now I'd basically been cornered into confronting it. I'd begun interviewing my sister and looking through court records, and I'd realized that this was something credible, backed up by a mountain of evidence, even eyewitnesses. So I said I'd write the article.
2: Farrow wrote, Very
3: often, women with allegations do not or cannot bring charges. Very often, those who do come forward pay dearly, facing off against a justice system and a culture designed to take them to pieces.
1: By this point, Rich and I had been traveling the country in rental
0: cars together for about a year, working on stories, often in the middle of nowhere. The story came out as we were sitting in line at some fast food place. Yeah. And I remember. Did we go to Sonic? I think we went to Sonic. You had told me that this article had come out, and I remember reading it. That was a real turning point for you. Everything we had done prior was good, but I I felt like there was a little bit of a change in you that you realized a need to cover stories where victims need to be heard. We got some stories greenlit that were about sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. One
1: of the interesting ones was about uh, how sexual abuse allegations are handled on college campuses.
0: Right.
2: I did everything a rape victim is supposed to do. I reported it. I allowed the rape kit to be taken. I gave a statement.
0: I learned a lot in that process. For sure. I remember talking to that Harvard student and she she didn't want to go on camera. She didn't want to go on camera for days and then finally she said, you know what, I'll do it because it's important. And I was like, whoa.
1: There is someone out there who has attacked me and will probably attack someone else, and I live with that.
0: Do you blame Harvard for that? I do. That was my first experience with that Mm -hmm. type of story. I don't think you could watch that piece and not have a different opinion on the matter after it. That was a precursor to the Weinstein story for sure. That year,
1: I pitched a series about bad behavior in Hollywood. And for months, I got a crash course in how hard to sell the topic is. A story on pedophilia was deemed too dark. One on race was dinged because our bosses said no one would care. But I held onto a green light on one tough story I'd pitched. Casting couch. The casting couch. It's a euphemism in the industry. It's when powerful people seek sexual favors from newcomers trying to get a foot in the door. And that fall, the term was coming up again because of something the actress Rose McGowan had tweeted. She used the hashtag, why women don't report, and wrote, quote, because it's been an open secret in Hollywood slash media, and they shamed me while adulating my rapist. She said she'd been raped by a powerful studio head, and that when she'd looked into reporting it, lawyers had told her she would, quote, never win, because she'd done a sex scene before. The tweets came up
0: in our planning meetings. We went up to uh, Noah Oppenheim's office and pitched kind of the, 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 the stories that we wanted to go in on. Noah Oppenheim,
1: again, is the president of NBC News. He's a former senior producer for Chris Matthews and for The Today Show. He also had a career in Hollywood, where he wrote screenplays, including one for Jackie, the Kennedy biopic starring
3: Natalie Portman. And if I don't, they'll interpret my silence however they want. Her brow furrows, her lips are drawn. She holds back her tears, but she can't hide her anger.
0: Oppenheim had also heard about the tweets. And so we we kind of left there with, like, the, not the mandate, but, like, the blessing of, like, well, if you can get Rose McGowan to do an interview, then it might be a good idea.
1: Yeah, it was a very casual interjection and, you know, ultimately obviously proved to be something of a Pandora's box.
0: So very quickly it became apparent that, like, I would have to make these calls. Right, because you had just written this article, and now you had some cred in in the space, and it might be good coming from you as opposed to some unknown producer sitting in New York at, at NBC. And that proved to be true. On a lot of those calls, the name Harvey Weinstein came up.
1: Weinstein had kind of reinvented the business model for the independent film. He knew how to turn them into events. Sex, Lies, in Videotape, Pulp Fiction, Shakespeare in Love. His movies had earned more than 300 Oscar nominations. At awards shows, he'd gotten literally more thank yous than God. Meryl Streep once even jokingly referred to him as God.
3: I met up with uh, the source again.
1: Rich and I would debrief after my reporting calls. What,
3: how'd you leave it with her? She's gonna, I guess, find a lawyer to talk to and Think about it a little more, but, you know, she seems like she's still in. She's not freaking out.
1: In February 2017, two executives who had worked with Weinstein and seen abusive behavior went on camera. They asked that we obscure their faces in shadow, which is a pretty common technique we use in sensitive investigative
0: stories. And I also got a firsthand account, one with no shadow at all. Leading up to it, we were not sure if Rose would talk and if anybody else would talk. And then Rose, you know, God love her decided to just do it. I don't think it's possible to overstate what a risky move this
1: was for McGowan. She felt her career had already been derailed after the initial incident. Further exposure could make things worse. And she knew Weinstein had a reputation for using elaborate tactics to intimidate those who spoke out against him. In mid-February, Rich and I headed up into the Hollywood Hills to see McGowan. We brought a camera crew. She came to the door to show us in. She was wearing a floppy sweater, only a little makeup. Her hair was buzzed. Rich helped set up the lights in her living room. I sat across from her, and we turned on the cameras.
0: I thought I I was for an hour at a meeting. And then on the way out, it turned into not a meeting.
1: McGowan wept, recounting her allegation.
0: It all happens very fast and very slow. I think any survivor can tell you that. And again, you separate from your body, and then all of a sudden, you have no clothes on. Was this a sexual assault? Yes. This was a rape? Yes. I mean, I've, I've been through probably hundreds, if not a thousand, thousands of interviews, I don't know, over the course of my career. It was not like any other interview I'd ever heard. It was gut-wrenching. I remember at the end of it, and after we talked to her after the interview, I thought to myself, holy moly, this is real. It it got real, right there.
1: At that point, she was identifying Weinstein clearly without naming him, referencing his movies, describing specific awards he'd won, asking people to connect the dots. Soon after, she would name him fully, on the record, and volunteer to do so on camera. McGowan told me she was worried NBC's leadership wouldn't see the story through.
0: Have
2: the lawyers watch this.
1: Yeah, oh, they will be.
0: <laughs> Watch it, but not just read it, and and uh, I hope they're brave too, because I tell you what, it's happened to their daughter, their mother, their sister, their aunt. Fact.
1: After the break, Harvey Weinstein gets in touch with me and my bosses. It was April 2017, about two months after we first interviewed Rose McGowan. I got a phone call. I called Rich to tell him about it right after.
3: Hey, you there? You yeah, down here. So, um, I got another call from another uh, of Harvey's interlocutors. This guy. The
1: call was from a guy named Matt Hiltzik. Hiltzik is a PR strategist. He's pretty well known in celebrity and political circles. Works with a lot of famous clients.
0: I I, I know. Him.
1: For a time, he was Weinstein's flag at Miramax. He was at an event called Women in the World, being headlined by Hillary Clinton. He was calling from backstage.
3: Hillary speaking, and you know, blah blah blah, schmoozing, small talk. He said, "So you know, Hillary's here and Harvey here, who I've worked with for years." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." Um, and uh, and he was like, "Oh, Harvey just walked in, actually." He said, you know, he, he said he, you know, he, who's this Ronan guy? He's asking questions about me. He's been investigating
1: me. I told Hiltzik yeah, so I to don't do ambush stories. stories. If this were to make it to air at all, I'd be calling Harvey Weinstein for comment or an interview long beforehand. And then, while I was relaying all this to Rich.
3: Hiltzik just texted me again now, saying of oh, Harvey. He is sort of hilarious, gave your message. He asked me to call you back. Right now? Yeah. She's trying to put you on the phone with Harvey? I don't know, I think it's a distinct possibility. Is that, I I just quoted you a text. Gave your message, she asked me to call you back. I haven't responded, I mean. uh,
1: That sound from Rich, by the way? it would be hard to overstate how much of being a journalist comes down to that sound.
3: uh,
1: My goal in these situations is always to be as fair as possible. Talking with Weinstein early might help him realize that. It might make him feel less under siege.
3: I mean, I could see arguments on both sides of that. Like, if he going to send a PI to go through my trash and try to build a narrative against me, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, these are the kinds of things people do when they're desperate. I, I just don't know.
0: I know.
1: On the other hand, there were risks. The more Weinstein knew, the more opportunity he'd have to move the chess pieces around, try and influence people involved in the story.
3: I think if they know that it's a long way out, then they'll probably just try and go above us and try and kill it in some capacity. Um, right. He's just going to go to somebody else, not you. You know, some honcho some way above us. He's just going to try to find ways to, to sabotage it. I know which he's going to probably do anyway. Um shit. I don't know. This is a confusing
1: one. Rich and I went back and forth like that for about 20 minutes. We decided I should just text back Hiltzik, the PR guy. Put the ball back in his court.
3: I'll just I'll say Thanks. "Ha, always happy to talk." Um okay, are you going to be around? Yeah, I'm driving. Okay. Sure. How's he just get it. Okay.
1: Hiltzik did call me back later, though not with Weinstein on the line. He said Weinstein was upset, agitated, that he'd dealt with this kind of reporting before. He also implied that Weinstein would likely be taking some kind of action, though it wasn't clear what that meant. I could hear applause in the background. It was for Hillary Clinton, who had just stepped on stage. She'd been in the green room talking to Weinstein. The very next day, I got a call from my boss, Richard Greenberg, the head of the investigative unit at NBC. He started off with small talk, asking about another book I was working on. I called Rich again to update him.
3: Um. Anyway, so then he got to what I assume is the real point of the conversation. He was sort of like, you know, so I think, you know, where where we stand now is like, let's just kind of give it a rest. Like, you know, I'm not saying don't work on it, but like, keep it on the back burner. You have so many other promising things you're working on, you know, what? what you don't have to necessarily focus on this. It, I just find it ominous, is the, the long and short of it. I don't know, you know I me, mean, I'm super cynical, so,
0: um, I don't know.
1: And soon, Rich was getting the same signals. He'd raise the Weinstein story, get a suggestion that he should focus on other things. It was hard not to speculate, hard not to ask ourselves, do you think Weinstein reached out to NBC? tried to get around us. We both knew the decision about whether to put this on air would ultimately be Noah Oppenheims, again, the president of NBC News, the guy who wrote Jackie.
3: you afraid I'm about to cry again?
1: No, I I say you're
0: more likely to scream.
3: Scream what?
0: My husband was a great man.
3: I wonder where Noah really is on this. I, I, I
0: believe that he
3: would not back down to pressure, you know, just based on what I know of the guy.
1: Rich and I were both worried. We decided we needed to work quietly without alerting our bosses and come back to them with a story so locked down they couldn't tell us to keep it on the back burner. So for the next few months, we scheduled Weinstein interviews around trips we had to take
0: for other stories. Like we were shooting this story out in the California. We can sprinkle in some interviews around that. You were keeping some of the files associated with the
1: story in a folder Uh, associated with another earlier story that we had been working on called Poison Valley. Poison
0: Valley.
2: (laughs) Which Um, was
1: about uh, Dow and Shell chemical uh, uh, putting toxic waste in California farmlands. It just seemed fitting in some way. The reporting was getting stronger and stronger. I was getting more and more interviews with women with allegations and with people around Weinstein who had seen abuse but I'd heard about one piece of evidence that might blow the whole thing open. An audio recording of Weinstein made by an Italian model named Ambra Gutierrez, who was wearing a wire. And she'd managed to capture this moment where Weinstein appeared to confess to repeatedly assaulting women. Gutierrez had been assaulted by Weinstein the day before. He'd grabbed her breasts without consent. Here's what I'll say about this recording. The actual story of how it was made and how I eventually got a hold of it. I got it. Is truly surprising. This recording? And I will tell that whole story in the next episode of this podcast. But for now, just know I got the recording. The recording, the audio. Come on. And Rich was the first person I wanted to play
0: it for. I'll never forget the first time I heard the audio. You walked into NBC and we went into like a side room and you played it for me.
2: I'm telling you right now. What here. do we
3: have to do here? Nothing.
2: I'm going to take a shower. You sit there and have a drink. Water. I don't
3: drink. Uh, you can I stay water. on the bar?
2: No. You must come here now.
0: I'm, I remember thinking at the time, like, his voice was, like, so monstrous and chilling. In that moment, you saw, at least I heard for the first time, what all these other women had talked about.
3: I want to do something. I don't want to. Go to the bathroom. Come here. Listen to me. I want to go
1: downstairs. The most damning portion of the recording comes when Gutierrez asks Weinstein why, the day before, he touched her breasts, and Weinstein says, "I'm used to that."
3: But, are you used to that? Yes. Come in. No, but I'm not used to that.
0: It was the first time in my producing anything that fear kind of just all of a sudden injected itself into it. The thought I had at that moment was. This is the beginning of the end of Harvey Weinstein. By the middle of summer
1: 2017, five women had directly described to me how Harvey Weinstein had harassed or assaulted them. Two were fully named in the NBC story at that point, McGowan and Gutierrez. And remember, we had that incredible tape of Gutierrez too. A third, Emily Nestor, had gone on camera with her face in shadow. And ultimately, she said NBC could use her name too, even tentatively agreed to reshoot the interview out of shadow if it would get the reporting across the finish line. NBC News still disputes Nestor's offer to go on the record, but she has been unwavering on this point. Nestor's claim was especially strong because it was backed up by documents we could have aired showing that she'd complained within the Weinstein Company about being harassed. I'd also interviewed 16 former and current executives
0: who said they'd witnessed harassment, Four of them had gone on camera in shadow. Each of which, by the way, we can't just say four executives summarily. Each of one made a decision to, to put themselves at risk, like Rose did and all these other women, and, and talk to us. Whether it was in shadow or not, mm-hmm. they, were at, they knew they were at great risk because they knew Harvey had private investigators, and anybody kind of floating around us in the story orbit was kind of in a danger. Rich and I, we felt confident in what we had.
1: So did every other journalist we consulted. We brought it to our bosses, and at first,
0: they had the same reaction. The reaction was, am I allowed to swear here? Yeah. The reaction was like, holy shit, like, you know, you guys got a lot of stuff. When Richard
1: Greenberg, the head of the investigative unit, heard the tape, he said of Weinstein, fuck it, let him sue. He and Susan Weiner, the NBC News general counsel, decided we were ready to seek comment from Harvey Weinstein. We all went to Noah Oppenheim,
0: the president of NBC News, and gave him a rundown of what we had. We went into his office, we were all excited. We were full of enthusiasm at that point. And we played the audio tape for him. I remember watching him and thinking like, he, he almost looked like ashen. Like the, the, the blood was like draining out of his face or something.
1: Yeah, it was, it was striking. Bizarre.
0: Um, he turned like white as a sheet. Instead of like, holy moly, this is incredible. Uh, it, was like, it was like, let's, hold on, what is this we got here? Is this newsworthy? Is there a story here? And I was like, what, what nonsense is this? This is crazy. There were questions about where we would air the material, whether the runtime was too long to get on air. You know, we talked about the merits of it. I think I mentioned, like, well, we could put this thing online. Like, we, you know, we were, we were f- still fighting. He said, well, I gotta, I'll have to bring this to Andy.
1: That would be Andy Lack, chairman of NBC News and MSNBC, our boss's boss's boss. Rich and I were thrown by what seemed to be happening,
0: by Oppenheim taking this story so far up the chain. He didn't say, give me the audio tape. I need to play this for Andy. It was, I need to go talk to Andy, or I need to bring this to Andy. And we, I remember we went in the elevator, and you and I looked at each other, like, what just happened in there? Did we witness the death of our story right there?
1: Was your impression that they were deliberately avoiding seeing the hardest pieces of
0: evidence? Yeah. Yeah, in retrospect, yes. I felt that the resistance had, had formalized. And was now, we were being told, coming from a higher level. Right. And I remember we, we had messaged each other like, this is a precarious moment in this story because the story is no longer in our hands. Somebody else is deciding the fate of this reporting.
1: there was silence. And when I kept banging on doors asking for answers, I was finally told that the matter was under review even higher up the chain by our parent company, NBC Universal, and its CEO, Steve Burke. A few days after that, I was told by Noah Oppenheim to pause our reporting. He said the company was worried about the legal implications of me talking to sources who had signed non-disclosure agreements with Weinstein. He cited a legal concept Tortious interference with contract. It refers to when someone deliberately tries to mess up a contract between two parties, usually to gain some kind of business advantage. If you remember the phrase at all, it's probably from a movie. Because there's a legal concept that has been getting some new attention recently. Tortious interference. Yeah. If two people that movie, like The Insider about CBS News's parent company shutting down its big tobacco reporting using this same specious argument.
2: Does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not.
0: It was baffling, because it, like, it was like the script of the movie playing out for us in slow motion. I remember Jonathan,
1: my partner at one point, just sort of shouting, frustrated, like, has no one in this building seen The Insider?
3: <laughs>
2: And you're questioning our journalistic integrity. No, I'm questioning your hearing.
1: Here's what I can tell you now that I didn't know was happening at the time. As I was working on this story, three top executives at NBC conducted at least 15 secret calls with Harvey Weinstein. In some, according to records and sources who listened, they had assured him that the reporting had been stopped before I knew it had been. Weinstein also later claimed in legal threat letters to me that NBC had given him written assurances that they'd killed the story. The network has denied reaching any agreements or making any assurances to Harvey Weinstein or his legal team. Almost all of this had been concealed from me and Rich. So I'd kept pushing as NBC kept stalling. As the network continued to drag its feet, McGowan, facing increasing pressure from mounting legal threats, sent NBC a cease and desist letter over her interview. We still had a lot, and I'd even gotten legal to sign off on a draft of the script, but the decision would ultimately fall to the executives. Then on August 8th, I went into a meeting with Oppenheim. After the meeting, I grabbed Rich and found a side room in 30 Rock to hop into. I turned on the recorder on my phone. We were doing that a lot by then. So at 3 p.m., I went in with Noah. Oppenheim's concerns weren't always coherent. He would go on to argue that the story wasn't news. He's like, my view is that the tape and Harvey Weinstein grabbing a lady's breasts a couple of years ago, he's like, that's not national news. And he said that we didn't have enough. He's like, look, we have uh, this anonymous sourcing in here. you know. And he seemed to slip up, saying Harvey says, and then walking it back and saying he'd been told Harvey said that there was a bigger issue, that because of my sister's assault allegation against Woody Allen, I had a conflict of interest. I also, and then, you know, he said, yeah, but you wrote that Hollywood Reporter piece a year ago and that caused such a huge splash and like the public narrative is gonna be terrible on this that like, you know, you let Ronan Farrow, who just, you know, came out as this kind of crusader on sexual assault issues, you know, hating his father. You saw that? hmm He's like, that. you let him do this, you know, this reporting, um, you know, despite the fact that you were aware that uh, the guy that he decried in this Hollywood Reporter piece, Woody Allen, had a, you know, a fruitful business relationship with Harvey Weinstein. To be clear, caring about an issue is not a conflict of interest. I had no animus against Harvey Weinstein. My sister's allegation wasn't related to him in any way. At the outset of the reporting, Greenberg had even sat with Rich and me, and we Googled and checked out any contacts between Weinstein and my family. Turns out, both of my parents had worked with him, like most people in Hollywood. I'd had only a friendly cocktail party interaction with him. Anyway, we all agreed, not a conflict of interest. Oppenheim told me the story was dead. That day at 30 Rock, Rich and I struggled to make sense of what was happening.
0: This is why this guy continues to get off. Good God. It's amazing, man. He okay. can win by just, or at least hold this off and get a news organization full of journalists and producers to, like, just cave on a story. It's just amazing.
1: Over the following days, there was some effort to put window dressing on the decision, with the network briefly saying they were going to re review the evidence. But the kill order held firm, and when I secured another major interview, that one in Los Angeles I mentioned, Oppenheim ordered me, and Greenberg ordered McHugh, to cancel it. Oppenheim told me NBC couldn't have anything to do with the story. After NBC killed the story, Oppenheim got a warm email from Weinstein, burying the hatchet. He mentioned how great Megyn Kelly's show was. Quote, I'm going to send you a little gift to celebrate, he wrote. Then Weinstein's staff got the email they typically got when a gift was mailed out. Update, it read. Noah Oppenheim received a bottle of Grey Goose. So I took the evidence to the New Yorker and they looked at the same reporting NBC had sent away and ran on all cylinders to build on it and get it out. You'd be surprised how many leads start to pan out once you aren't being told to cancel interviews every time you reveal they're happening. It took a little more than a month to go from greenlighting the story to publishing it. Rich had encouraged me to take the story elsewhere, even though it meant he couldn't be a part of finishing the reporting. I was a contractor who worked in print occasionally. He was still a full-time employee at NBC and had to keep his
0: job to support his girls.
1: He felt conflicted about staying at the network. Other
0: journalists on the NBC investigative unit did too. In the same way that we were asking, you know, victims of sexual assault to come forward and tell their stories, like, we had a responsibility then to, to shine a light on what was happening. Yeah, at NBC, the day the story broke, I went on the Rachel Maddow show.
3: Joining us once again is Ronan Farrow. He's a contributor for the New Yorker magazine who broke this explosive story today uh, about further revelations concerning Hollywood mega-producer Harvey Weinstein. Again, the
1: NBC executives asked me not to talk about why the story didn't run on the network. I told them I wouldn't bring it up, but also wouldn't lie. But let me tell you, folks, at Rachel Maddow. She's got a nose for a good story.
3: And NBC says that you know, you know didn't that th- the story wasn't publishable, that it wasn't ready to go by the time that you brought it to them. But obviously, it's ready to go by the time you got it into The New Yorker.
1: Uh, I walked into the door at The New Yorker with a, uh, an explosively reportable piece that should have been public earlier. And uh, immediately, obviously, The New Yorker recognized that. And it is not accurate to say that it was not reportable. In fact, there were multiple determinations that it was reportable at NBC.
0: After the show, I texted Rich. I was out celebrating my wife Danny's birthday. Um, We were at a restaurant, and you sent me a text in the middle of it saying, um, boom, you know, I told the truth. I guess that's former NBC correspondent now. That was my last appearance on MSNBC
1: for a while. Rich, however, still had to go into work the next day. He and the investigative
0: team were called into a meeting with Oppenheim, where Oppenheim largely went on the defensive. We tried, and I want to correct the noise out, out there, and we supported this story, and Ronan's, you know, we've been putting him on our air. And, uh, he, he tried to go down this road, and I, I literally, it was like the second most mad I've ever been in my life, and people in the room described it like, we could feel like the back of your neck getting red. Like, um, <laughs> I was like, I'm witnessing a, uh, a cover-up. But I mean, there's no other way to, I was like, I'm witnessing them rewriting my history there was a point where i was like you know what i'm i'm either going to just bite my tongue or I, or i'm going to have to actually confront this in this meeting and it was terrifying cuz i was like this guy's the president and i'm you know a senior produ- or a supervising producer and so i said i just went in i was like you know what forgive me but i have to correct you on some things and uh it got it got messy a lot of the members of the investigative unit like really got upset and asked some really tough questions to the point where he was like, you know, uncle. A few weeks later, more news
1: broke at NBC. After what was at the time called an allegation of inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace, Matt Lauer, the network's biggest star, was fired. And again... NBC executives went to confront a room
0: full of journalists. So in this, what I call it, um, you know, this familiar bit of performance art, Noah calls this meeting and walks through how it's a sad and, you know, sad day at NBC. And Matt Lauer is now fired and a brave young woman came forward, et cetera, and described allegations against him that were serious. And so we took action and fired him. And does anybody have any questions? And Rich, feeling upset and emboldened, raised his hand and asked
1: a question about whether this was a pattern.
0: Has anybody ever raised any sort of sexual misconduct claims against Matt Lauer? We've all heard stuff about Matt Lauer, everybody in the building hears that there's affairs and such, but has anybody ever raised, like, sexual misconduct? Like, have you ever, has anybody ever, you know? And it was like, no, you know, nobody. Um, And we went back and looked and looked in all the files and looked in every room in this building and there was nothing about Matt Lauer.
1: In that meeting with the investigative unit and others over the ensuing months, Oppenheim and Kim Harris, the NBC Universal lawyer, would swear that the company hadn't been aware of any complaints about Lauer, and more broadly, hadn't reached any sexual harassment settlements with anyone in the prior six or seven years. Eventually, I'd learned that in that timeframe, they'd actually reached at least seven. The network euphemistically called them enhanced severance agreements that tied non-disclosure provisions with staggering amounts of money as women left or were pushed out of their jobs. NBC Universal still says it's just coincidental that these agreements were reached after the women in question had made complaints around the office. The women on the other end of these agreements certainly considered them sexual harassment settlements, and an executive involved in brokering some of them later confirmed that purpose to me. In a statement provided to Rachel Maddow, NBC Universal later said it would release women from their, quote, perceived obligations, end quote, under any severance agreement if they came forward to the company to ask permission. So as NBC was arguing that it was impossible for us to report on Harvey Weinstein's sexual harassment settlements, they were upholding their own. And all of those secrets had been under threat of exposure as Harvey Weinstein bore down on them during that long year of reporting. Even at the time, Rich felt he was being lied to. The network offered him a raise to stay. But he felt like he was being asked to sign on to the party line that we never had the story,
0: or at least stay quiet about the whole thing. Going to work each day became a little bit more soul crushing because I was like holding this in. Um, One of my dear friends at the network Senior correspondent, she's like, "Look, man, you're you're walking around like eor. Yeah. You
2: were kind of difficult to live with for a little while.
0: <laughs> That's Danny again, Rich's
1: wife.
2: It's gonna in- kill you internally. You're gonna be miserable. You're raising children; they're gonna be miserable seeing their dad is so unhappy, like hitting this job every day and going in. You're never gonna be able to live with yourself, and we're not gonna be able to live with you. So you yeah. gotta get, you gotta go.
0: She's like, are 'You're you're never gonna be happy if you stay here and you don't if you don't do your part to to say what you need to say.'" I had to decide what kind of person I was going to be. What what made you different? Why, when you have something playing out that is about
1: a collective shutdown and people passing the buck and corporate cowardice, why did you feel it was your responsibility to do the right thing?
0: Um, I think, honestly, it goes back to the the women in the story and Rose, you know, from the moment I heard her tell her story to us, you know, there was a tremendous responsibility we shared to to move the ball forward because they risked a hell of a lot. I don't know. I felt the responsibility not to screw that up. You know, I had every intention of continuing. And so when your own network says, no, you can't, even though you've worked on this for eight months, I knew in my gut that was just wrong. How did having for? small daughters weigh on these ethical decisions that you were making? It was a huge part of the decision. It's like, what kind of world do I want them to grow up in? I wanted them to, to look at me when they were 18 and reading all this stuff eventually to be like, you know, my dad acted honorably. And I think, um, had I had I not done what I did, I don't think I would be happy with myself. Rich resigned from NBC
1: News in August 2018. Soon after, he went to the New York Times and spoke out publicly about what he saw happen inside the network. After Rich resigned, NBC chairman Andy Lack released a memo vigorously defending the network's decision to kill the story. Contradicting several of the women who came forward about Weinstein, the memo asserted that none of them had ever offered to go on the record. The network still disputes that they obstructed the reporting at any point, And NBC News has forcefully denied killing the Weinstein reporting to prevent details about Matt Lauer's behavior from becoming public. This year, the network reportedly renewed Noah Oppenheim's contract as president of NBC News. Rich McHugh is currently looking for full-time work.
2: Hi, this is Lowell Bergman, investigative journalist former producer for 60 Minutes, which was the basis for Al Pacino's character in The Insider. I'm recording from a beach in the Caribbean, where it's almost certainly nicer than wherever you are listening to this podcast. And I'm going to read the credits now. The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and Ronan Farrell. It was produced by Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ang, Janelle Pfeiffer Bujin Lee and Laura Dodd Our senior producer is Eric Menel Editing by Joel Lovell Executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky Production help from Emily Becker Maddie Sprung-Kaiser Nur Abraham and Alex Petraskovich. Pack Checking by Sean Lavery Music in the episode from Blue Dot Sessions Marmoset and First Special thanks to John Lovett.
1: Next week, we're going to hear the story of the secret recording that helped undo Harvey Weinstein, from the woman who made it.
0: And so I thought, uh, that's it. They heard it. I was saying the truth. (laughs) And instead, they they asked me, Amber, could you do something for us? And I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, um, would you want to meet them tomorrow and wear a wire?
1: This all, of course, is based on reporting I did for my book Catch and Kill, which is available wherever you buy books. Thanks for listening.
2: We'll be back next week.